and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. Well, we've had 10 weeks of podcast sports specials and what a 10 weeks it's been. We've got two new British world champions. We've got Royal International winners. We've covered the Burley dramas. We've just loved sharing every single minute of that amazing sport with you on our podcast. From this week, now that it's getting a little quieter again and we're moving into the autumn, we're reverting to our previous podcast format, so we'll be bringing you an interview each week and a roundup of the latest news plus an advice section. We're starting off this week with an interview with Joe Stockdale, a member of the British bronze medal winning team at the Show Jumping World Championships out in Herning in August. He talks all about that incredibly exciting competition. It's difficult to describe really the feeling because it was just, it was such an up and down competition. You never felt safe where you were, if that made sense. You know, you just didn't know what was going to come next. It was very exciting. I'll then be chatting to our news team about how the economic situation is affecting the horse world, road safety and maternity leave for riders. Finally, Farrier Sam Draycott will give us some insight into abscesses in horses' feet and how best to deal with them. These are probably a bane in a lot of people's lives. They happen to any horse, anywhere, anytime. Some horses are more prone to get them, some horses aren't. So buckle up your noseband and let's get started. Hi, I'm Jennifer Donald, show jumping editor at Horse and Hound, and I'm thrilled to be joined this week by one of the brightest young talents in the sport, still fresh from his recent Team Bronze medal winning performance at the World Show Jumping Championships. It's Joe Stockdale. Joe, welcome to this week's podcast. Hello, thanks for having me on. What a year it's been for you. Um, let's start by talking about those World Championships where you and Equine America Casherelle won Team Bronze. I mean, that's a fantastic achievement. Tell us about the moment when you realised you'd won a medal. Um, yeah, it was pretty surreal, really. Um, I was actually <laughs> stood with Harry Charles out in, out by the collector rings and, um, the timing system had gone down, you know, had gone down online. So we were actually, um, obviously we've been jumping, so we haven't been keeping track of all the scores. So we were a little bit unsure as to where we stood at that point. And we'd sort of done the math and worked out that we needed a couple of things to happen basically for us to get the, get the medal. Um, so it was touch and go and we were, we were, oh, we were waiting and watching and, <laughs> Um, and we'd sort of, we'd actually tried to wander off and went, tried to get, you know, find some food quickly because we thought if yeah. we keep watching it, we'll jinx it and we won't, you know, yeah. it will never happen. So, and then with that, um, we, you know, I think a fence fell and that basically gave us the result that we needed to put us ahead. And, uh, oh, wow. Yeah. It's difficult to describe really the feeling because it was just, it was such an up and down competition. You never felt safe where you were, if that made sense, you know. You yeah. just didn't know what was going to come next. And a lot of the, you know, the last riders from all the teams um, who are usually, you know, the strongest, you know, the safety riders, anchor riders at the back, you know, there was a couple of rogue scores coming. So, um, no, it was it was very exciting. Yeah, amazing. And what, what about when you were on the podium? Does um, Did you have a chance to sort of soak it all in or is that just a complete blur as well? No, it's a blur. I didn't know what to do, really. You know, <laughs> yeah. Ben and Scott are used to being up on those podiums yeah. <laughs> all the time, you know, but for, for me, it was a bit, uh, you know, it was a bit strange. So I wasn't quite sure what to do. I was kind of looking around a bit 
bit gormless, I think, at times. <laughs> well, you look like a professional. It's fine. You winked it. <laughs> um, and just give us an idea of the sort of size and technicality of those tracks out in Denmark. I mean, especially towards the end of the week. What were your thoughts walking those courses? I mean, they have to be seen to be believed, some of them, don't they? Yeah. Um, I mean, I walked in the first day and, you know, I, I was sort of thinking, you know, we've had a great year on the Nations Cups and, um, mm. you know, those five-star Nations Cups and Grand Prix and that's a real, you know, they're, they're tough. They're, there's no gimmies and no. So I thought, I, I was always expecting it to be tough. Um, yeah. And I thought, it'll maybe, you know, it's going to be a bit bigger than what I've jumped. It's going to be a bit more technical, but you don't appreciate mm. it at all until you get in that ring and you walk it. And, you know, I walked, I walked the speed class first day and you sort of think to yourself, oh my God, you know, was this a good idea to be, you know, I've based my whole year trying to get here and I've got here and I think, oh gosh, this is tough. You know, this is really yeah. difficult and I've got to, I've got to do a job around here. So, um, oh my goodness. It's, it's incredible, you know, the, the standard there really is such an amazing learning curve for me, such a great experience. Um, you know, and I took, I've taken a lot away from it, even just being there, you know, like you say, with the, the best in the world and, and, um, Ben and Scott, particularly our team, just spending time with them and seeing how they conduct themselves in that sort of situation, how they ride their process, the whole thing. You know, I, I felt like I've taken masses away from it. Oh, fantastic. Um, and tell us about the lovely Cash. I mean, she's uh, she's a lovely horse. And she she absolutely did you proud out there. She's got a great backstory as well, slightly poignant backstory, hasn't she? Yeah, she's a superstar. Um, and so we've had her since she was three years old. So we've produced mm-hmm. her all the way through her career. Um, and she was one of the last sort of horses that my dad picked out. Um, he had seen her in a in a young horse auction, just loose jumping and broken, and he he loved her then. And so we bought her, we brought her home. Me and my dad broke her in together. I was actually one of the first people to sit on her uh, when oh, we were wow. first breaking her in and getting getting her under saddle. Um, so me and my dad did that together with her. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, we always knew, you know, it was one of those where she got to the age of probably about five or six. And already then you started to feel that she had something special about her and she um, she was really, you know, going to be a superstar because the way she learned things, she just, you teach her something one day and the next day she picked it up and just had a yeah. great attitude um, oh, towards everything that she did. So um, she's, a, she's a very special horse to all of us here at the yard. I bet, absolutely. And I mean, she's part of a, what seems to be a sort of really exciting string of horses you have at the moment. Can you tell us about some of the other stars in your stable? I've got, you know, I'm lucky. I've got some very supportive owners at the moment that have been with us for a long time. Um, and, uh, yeah, we've, we've, had, we've got some lovely horses coming through. Um, I've got a fairly, a couple of fairly new rides. Um, I've got a horse called Bingo de Chateau, who sort of played as my second, second horse this year. Um, been at the five star shows with Cacherelle, like we said. Um, I've also got Equine America. Candleford, who has had some very, very strong placings. Um, at, again, all the five-star shows. I've just been to a couple of shows out in Belgium where he was placed twice the first week and twice the second week in ranking oh, classes. And so I've got, you know, I, I've actually, and I've also got some real nice young horses coming through at the minute as well. Um, so it's nice to sort of have a bit of depth there um, in my string and hopefully I'm trying to find the next one that's going to, going to break through and, and be my next sort of superstar in a few years time 
Gosh, yeah. I mean, that's always the thing, isn't it? It's always finding the sort of next level underneath. Is, do you quite enjoy producing the young ones at home? Do you enjoy having a sort of week at home where you can get back on the young ones and, and work with them for a bit? I, I love actually having a week at home and being able to come home and, and get work into the horses that are here. Um, you know, mm. it's fantastic being out of the shows. Don't get me wrong. Um, and it's, yeah. it's great fun and, you know, real tough competition, <clears throat> but you can't beat being at home and, and, uh, you know, actually, I, I love it here. We've got a l- nice setup, and it's nice to be able to to come back and, like you say, produce a few of the younger horses um, and sort of try and see their progress as they go along. It's very very rewarding. Oh, I bet absolutely. And talking about these uh, big competitions, it's quite a busy couple of weeks coming up. You first of all, you've got the Nations Cup final in Barcelona. I mean, to be picked for that—that's a great honour, again, isn't it? Yeah, lo- lovely to be on um, team duty. It's always special. You know, every time you get to wear wear the badge and wear that flag it's, it's special um to me um and it, it, you know it, it's a real honor to be to be asked to be on the team so i know that barcelona obviously again it's gonna be tough um but um i'm there with Cacharel and she's feeling in good form off the back of the championships and off, off the back of a little bit of a rest so um yeah, hopefully yeah. we can go there and, and get a bit of a result with the team fantastic and it's your first time in barcelona is that right it is, yeah. I've never been before. Oh, gosh, yeah. So, um, yeah, lots to look forward to. But you're part of a very exciting team heading out there. Do you always go in with, a, you know, the same will to win? Or do you think you've got a particularly competitive chance this year? Or what are your expectations ahead of it? I mean, we always, you know, you're always looking to go there and try and get a good result and, and do the best you can. And I think with the team we've got, although it's we're a fairly young team, I think we've all got the results there to back it up and perfectly capable of all going there and jumping um a clear or two so you just never know yeah. until, until you're there in the situation but um I've got a lot of faith in the in the guys um that are yeah. going along so <laughs> it's a nice team to be a part of oh good yeah I mean you yeah, sort of Nations Cup uh jumping's been a key part of this year hasn't it I mean you've done some great things produce some double clears along the way is is the team jumping something you particularly enjoy being part of along with those uh guys as part of the great britain team i love yeah i love the nation's cup series um i think certainly for me this year um it was it, it's been a great learning curve again um and again being in a few of those teams with the guys that have been there done it before um good experience yeah. to be around them and um, it's also a bit of added, added pressure when you know you get in that team situation that you don't normally oh, get. Yeah. <laughs> um, you obviously you're jumping for your for yourself individually, which is fine, but all of a sudden you've got three other guys that are, are counting on you to go there and make a difference. So um, I like that side of it. I like the pressure. I like the the camaraderie that comes with being a, as part of a team. Um, and I, I just I've really enjoyed this series this year. Brilliant. Yeah, it's been fantastic to watch. It's been, uh, again, yeah, ups and downs all over the place. It's been uh, good for spectators. Um, And then we move on to Horse of the Year show the week after. Can you tell us which horses you're taking to Birmingham this year? Uh, My plan is I'm going to take uh, Bingo de Chateau again and Mm -hmm. um, Equine America Candleford are going to go with me. Um, I think I think at the minute just those two horses for there, yeah. Right. I mean, it's a real crowd favourite, that show. What do you love most about going to Horse of the Year show? Oh, definitely the crowd. You know, you get in there, good atmosphere. You get people. You know, people get excited when you jump a good round, or certainly yeah, things like the puissance um, <laughs> and and the Grand Prix in those classes. Uh, definitely, I think the crowd makes that show. Um, you take away the crowd, and again, it's just a bit of a. You know, it's a, 
normal show and all of a sudden you put the big crowd in there in that enclosed environment and you get the yeah. atmosphere it makes it so so special it's good isn't it i think especially since um lockdown as well people are just so excited to be out and about cheering again so uh yeah, yeah it's a pretty special one isn't it um and then looking further ahead do you sort of set yourself goals are there a bucket list of classes and titles you'd love to win in the future oh definitely in the long term definitely in the long term um, the King George the Fifth Gold Cup at Hickstead's always been one for me. That was that was probably uh, the win that my dad regarded of his his sort of greatest win. And it was a shame this year that I I didn't jump at Hickstead with uh, Casherel. I took I took uh, you know my second horse, and he's a little bit inexperienced at that level still. But I thought he jumped a good round. Um, so right. be, it'd be nice to come back next year and set my eyes on that a little bit and try and set up to. Uh, to go there and do the best he can but um mm -hmm. it might take me a few years yet to <laughs> it might take me a few tries to get that one done it's uh it's on a different level isn't it it's a it's a fantastic competition in itself but uh yeah you definitely need the right horse i think it's always the, the case yeah. in these uh, big classes um and obviously we've got uh, olympic qualification in the bag now for 2024 do you think paris is a realistic goal for you now is that on the sort of long horizon it's definitely on on my you know in, in my sights. Um, oh, a lot can happen in that time. Don't get me wrong; things can change. You know, things can go wrong or whatever. But um, it's definitely something I've got in my sights. Um, you know, I've got another year of experience, and so does so does Cacharel. So um, I'm hoping that we've got another year in between now. So um, mm -hmm. just keep keep trying to build on what we've got at the minute. And um, like I say, you never know quite where you're going to be in, in the year and a half, <laughs> two years time, but we can sort of have that as a, as a long-term goal, yeah. Absolutely. Oh gosh, it's very exciting. I mean, uh, and let's not forget, I mean, it was only four years ago you had your heart set on a cricketing career. I mean, you must feel <laughs> immense pride at all you've achieved in such a short space of time. It's incredible, really. Thank you. No, I think it was, it was the right decision in the end um, between, <laughs> between the cricket and the rioting, but um, yeah. Yeah, I, like I say, I'm, I'm lucky to to have supportive um, owners that I've got. Um, you know, they've been with us for a long time, so I appreciate them uh, a lot, and also my my sponsors as well. So, oh yeah, um, there's a big team behind sort of making it all work, and um, yeah, it's a it's a big operation. But um, yeah, like I say, I'm I'm very proud, and uh, I think it was the right decision. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're not doing too badly so far. It uh, seems to be going in the right direction. Um, well, brilliant, Joe. It's been great chatting to you. That, I mean, there seems to be so much to look forward to and uh, you and your horses seem to be on a very exciting journey. So uh, we look forward to following your progress. Thank you very much for joining us. No, thank you for having me. So I'm joined now by two members of our news team, Lucy Elder and Becky Murray. Becky, I hear it's pretty cold up in Scotland. It's miserable and it's worse because I'm just home from holiday a week ago and so I'm really feeling the cold now. Um, it's windy, it's wet and yeah, winter's coming. Oh no, are you still riding? <laughs> 
I'm trying to, but I ride in my field and that's just been absolutely soaked. Um, so I think I'm going to need to look at getting my horse out and about. Um, I've got my trailer, so I think I need to start looking at arena higher because I don't think my field's going to take much more. Oh, gosh. And Lucy, how are things with you? Yes, good, thank you. I think probably not as chilly as where Becky is um, <laughs> up, up further north. But um, I was looking at my calendar this week and I can't believe I'm heading to Osberton. It's first we're recording this just ahead at the first weekend of October and it's one of the last internationals of the year in Britain and it's how do we get here how did this happen I swear it was barely two minutes ago I know it is amazing that we've only got a month of eventing left uh, in uh, in in Britain really before uh, before the season is out it has absolutely flown past and uh, yeah it's uh, well I think this one caught us all by surprise of being back Ooh. to the regular podcast format having had those uh, 10 weeks of sports specials as well so uh, thank you Lucy and Becky for being on on, on standby ready to jump in <laughs> with this one <laughs> getting back to the normal format I uh, I had a bit of a training weekend last weekend I had a uh, was on a simulated cross-country jumping clinic and then did a dressage lesson as well so Ooh, lovely yeah just trying to trying to keep up the training even though I don't have any more uh, any more full-on BE events this uh, this year but I've got one uh, sort of eventers challenge in a couple of weeks time so uh, got to keep the efforts up <laughs> well let's look at the uh, the news that you have been looking at over the past week and uh, talking about it being cold and not wanting to put the heating on Lucy you have been looking at the economic crisis and where it's biting in the horse world and one of the areas that you looked at was equine charities I know you spoke to a representative at the Blue Cross as part of that tell us about what's happening in that area Yes, I did. So Blue Cross, they released some figures in mid-August, which showed the charity had received 144 requests from people asking for help to rehome their horse or pony or to take them in. Um, but what I found interesting in this, you know, sort of you see numbers all the time, don't you, uh, when you're talking about rehoming and things, but more than 70% had cited personal or financial circumstances as the reason. So I thought, you know, we're hearing in the news all the time about the wider financial climate and things. It's certainly not something that's just affecting the horse world. Um, I don't think I need to tell our listeners that. Um, but I wanted to dig a little bit deeper. So I spoke to Blue Cross and what's significant about these statistics and these percentages is that it is the increase in people uh, citing financial reasons compared to pre previous years. So I spoke to Annabelle Taylor, who is rehoming coordinator at Blue Cross, and she said that in some cases they're hearing it's it's kind of emergency situations, the side of things where people are finding they can't afford next month's livery. Um, so it's quite sudden. She said some have got, you know, it's a little bit more sort of longer term, but it is, I mean, there's no two ways about it. It's it's really sad. Um, horses are, as we know, they're part of the family. But she said that if people are calling them and saying that, you know, that they're using a food bank or they can't afford to feed their family, it's not affordable reality, you know, to be to be keeping a horse. Yeah, for sure. And that's uh, so sad to hear. And employment is another area, obviously, that's affected. And I know that you got some comments from Fee Borton, who's the British Grooms Association and Equestrian Employers Association membership manager. What sort of thing was she talking about? Yes, again, and I think it was something that came across from all the people I spoke to in this piece, which pulls together quite a few strands, not every strand, obviously, or you'd have a book um, from across the industry. But it's the wider picture that we're seeing it's not you know just one thing or just grooms or just employers or just owners or or for you know that side of things but what she said is their big push is 
for people not to see membership and the insurance that comes with membership as an area to save money on. So she said that they've had people um, ring to say that they want to cancel as they want to put the heating on this winter and spend their money on that, but that that is short-sighted. So she said they're pushing the message for not for the association's benefit, but for the benefit of you know grooms um, because you know you do not want to be in a situation where for example you cannot work and then you have not got money coming in um, but on the plus side they have had a big month of people signing up this month for membership so she is hopeful that the message is coming across and I think it's also worth noting that you know there's those brilliant support lines um, grooms minds rinders minds for anyone who is feeling really worried about this or it's impacting their mental health in that way but also those organizations have got you know loads of advice and support you know just practical support as well um through their through their channels their website and their phone lines too mm, well this is a uh, probably a good point to mention that i think we have some uh, some information about what help is available in lots of different areas on our website if you go to horseandhound.co.uk forward slash support and racing welfare is another organization that you spoke to lucy Yes, I did. And again, it comes back to I sort of see a number and I want to see behind that number. So they'd had a 43% increase in people applying for support grants. And I spoke to them to find out a little bit more about why. Um, And again, it comes back to that big picture thing. It's I spoke to Becky Ireland from Racing Welfare and she was saying that it's you know, we've had two years of COVID, um, which has been put pressure on people's finances in lots of ways. Um, and then just as people were getting back to what they thought was going to be normal, we've had all of this, you know, um, fuel increases, um, energy bill increases, which is all, it's like a domino effect, you know, that's then impacting supply chains and things as well. So uh, we're seeing inflation. So it's just as when people were thinking they're getting back to normal, it's not quite normal. Um, But what I found, I'm going to pick out a couple of points from that conversation with her, which I thought were particularly interesting and particularly important. Um, And the first is that they found that by making their criteria for applying for grants more specific, they actually found that they are reaching more people and that more people are applying for them um, which I'm not sure if that's a mindset thing or a psychological thing where people would you know hear about a grant and think oh maybe that's not for me but by making some really simple criteria and I think it's as simple as do you work in racing do you have energy bills um, people are able to rule themselves in and apply online so they are you know really pleased to be helping people that way um, and the other point that I want to make, because I know that, of course, we we talk to the equestrian world here, but that racing welfare, I think if people work in, you know, training yards and things, they know that racing welfare is the charity for them. But actually, they help a lot more people than just that. So I think their rule of thumb, they said, was if you derive 75% of your income connected to racing, then they, you know, they are a charity that can help you. So perhaps if you work in, say, a veterinary practice or a feed merchant that's serving one of those big racing hubs, then um, Racing Welfare can be there to help you too. Mm, Good. Well, it's good to hear about the support that is available, although obviously sad circumstances leading people to to need help from from those charities and organisations. Thank you, Lucy. Becky, you are on the the road safety topic this week. It's always a big one for our listeners and readers. And you've been writing about the largest pass wide and slow event which has ever happened this week. Is that right? How big was it? 
Yes, this year there was more than 200 rides um, and that's across the country and this is a huge achievement. The event first launched in 2016 with only 20 rides and every year it's just grown and grown and you know riders are really really getting behind it. Yeah, good to hear. And I think you spoke to the founder of that organisation, Pass Wide and Slow, Debbie Smith, about the event and about the campaign a bit more generally. What does she say? Well, she was obviously delighted with the attendance of this year's events and hopes that this will continue to grow each year. And, you know, she mentioned one ride had about 50 people in attendance and then there were smaller rides with maybe six people. But the sort of important part is, that, you know, it doesn't matter if it's a big group or a small group, it's about getting out there and raising awareness. And Debbie was also really pleased that a number of rides had support from police forces, councillors and MPs. And she said, that's really the type of support, you know, equestrians need. And it's really sort of pushing that campaign and getting it out to more and more people. Yeah. Oh, well, uh, good to hear that from Debbie. Thank you, Becky. Coming back to you, Lucy, you have also been writing this week about a dispute between the Olympic dressage champion, Jessica von Brede-Verndel, and the FEI, Horse Sports International Governing Body, over maternity leave rules. It's a big topic, it's a knotty one, but in a nutshell, tell us what's happened here. Yes, so in a nutshell, Jessica, who is our you know, reigning Olympic champion, planned to return to competition at Ludwigsburg, which was in late September, following the birth of her daughter in August. But she was denied permission to start by the FEI, and they said that that was because she had applied for maternity leave, and that must be for a minimum of six months. Okay, and what does Jessica say about this? So, understandably, um, as came across in the her Facebook and Instagram posts about this, she's frustrated and wants the rules to change for future. And the FEI has actually said it's going to review these. She also said that it was neither her nor the German Federation's interpretation of the rule that she had to be out for six months. And I'll come on to play, explain the FEI's rules in detail in, in a sec as, um, yeah, so I'm not confusing this part with that part. But um, Jessica said that she had accepted that she was going to lose the relative ranking points that had been frozen while she was on maternity leave by restarting early, but not that the FEI would say that she couldn't return before six months at all. And she pointed out that you don't know beforehand how the birth is going to go. So if you don't apply and you're out for longer, then you could lose your ranking points. You know, you could put yourself at more of a disadvantage by not applying for maternity leave um, through the FEI. As you said, it's a, it's a big topic. Mm, and what does the FEI say? So the FEI said that Jessica knew the rules and that they were explained to her beforehand. Uh, as I said, it is going to review them. And I think it's interesting because this is this is not new. While it's a high profile case, it's not, you know, a sudden change to the rules. So the FEI maternity leave rules, they're not consistent across the disciplines. They first landed in jumping, I want to say in 2010. And then after some... Um, sort of debate and pushing around it they came to dressage in 2019 so in the disciplines that they do exist to give you you know real clear points about what they are it means that if you apply for them it means that 50 percent of a rider's world ranking points are frozen for a competition break of six to 12 months but they don't exist in eventing and i've been writing about this at horse and hound since 2018 and there have been cases in eventing where you know top riders I mean I'm talking about major major winners have dropped hundreds of places in the rankings because they've had time out to have a baby and the FEI has told me previously that it's a risk management um, decision behind those um, but I also think it's crucial to point out at this point that 
they aren't the same thing as minimum eligibility requirements. So that's, you know, how many clears you've had in eventing. Going off on a slight tangent there. But my point is, is that Jessica's case is, is a very high profile case, but it's also not the only first high profile case this year. So gold medal winning German show jumper, Jana Frederica Mez Zimmermann was impacted by these when she returned to competition um, in the spring. And she's been involved in forming a group called Equal Equest, which you can find on Instagram if you want to look them up. Um, and they're effectively, they are pushing uh, for some simple changes to improve the rules for riders. So things like more flexibility for in the time frame to return earlier if riders wish to. Um, wild cards for major shows based on a rider's ranking before their maternity leave. Because ranking points are, I mean, they're very important for, for lots of reasons. Um, but particularly in show jumping, they are really really influential on which shows you are you can jump at you're invited to jump at in the entries process for those um i spoke to co-founder of that group frederica back and she said that it's not about you know advantaging mothers it's about making the rules work in a way that don't actively disadvantage a person and so as i said i've been writing about these for quite a few years now and i think there's a lot of fantastic things about our sport. There's a lot of brilliant things that our sport does in terms of equality um, and men and women competing against each other. But I'm just not quite sure that this part of it is quite working as well as it could. So I really hope that they do look at it again um, because nobody should be disadvantaged for the, the right to start a family. Mm, well, I, th I think that point about flexibility and about what Jessica said about not knowing how birth is going to go is a really crucial one here, Lucy, because, you know, I have a lot of friends who have babies and I've seen them have very different experiences of birth and of getting back to being active, of getting back in the saddle, even as low level riders or, or leisure riders or grassroots competitors. And uh, absolutely nobody can predict what's going to happen. You don't know if you might end up having an emergency C-section. You don't know if there might be, you know, quite serious health implications from what happens during birth that stuff is wildly wildly and terrifyingly unpredictable mm. and it just seems mad that you've got to sort of put your neck on the line and say I'm taking six months maternity leave and you don't have any flexibility on that I completely agree or to say to think to yourself beforehand oh I won't take it and then to find you you know for every reason because it's a very personal choice are out for longer and or you don't want to be coming back as soon and and to find that your rankings points are completely lost that way it's um yeah i think there's some small changes that can be made here and i also think it's really important for i think a lot of sports have been talking about this recently i've certainly been reading about it in tennis in recent years um you want people to be not disadvantaged well, it's really interesting to get your views on that, Lucy. You are such an expert in this, I think, after uh, writing about it for Horse and Hound for a, a good few years. And it'll be interesting to see if the FEI does review these rules and, and what could be done to maybe build in a bit more flexibility for new mothers. Thank you so much, Lucy, and to Becky for joining us today too. We're going over now to Sam Draycott. Sam is a farrier based in the south of England who specialises in remedial and laminitic shoeing. Sam has hit nationwide fame sharing his day-to-day -day work on TikTok and has 2.3 million followers. Over to you, Sam. Hi there. On this episode, we're going to be talking about abscesses. These are probably a bane in a lot of people's lives. They happen to any horse, anywhere, anytime. Some horses are more prone to get them, some horses aren't. And there's no general rule of thumb for a specific breed or area 
or what type. So there are many things to contributing factors of getting abscesses, but there's no specific breed for it. So with the first thing would be, especially in the winter, you can get very deep, muddy fields and entrances. These can cause infections um, from the outside in. Any of the finer horses can get that. Any of the cobbier horses get that. So that's just one of those things. Once the infection is in there, then you've almost got, best way to relate is like a blood blister under your thumb. So you've got excessive pressure. So you've got an infection, you've got the white blood cells trying to attack the infection. But what happens where you've got the white blood cell in there uh, building up, the body's struggling to get rid of the, 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 the excess and the pressure. Because it's a hard hoof capsule, the pressure just builds up. So with this, once you've got a horse, you know, try and get out the field because once they've got an abscess, they almost look like they've broken their leg when they walk. So that's like a severe labourless. A lot of people ring me again, oh, my horse has broken, broken its leg, but it's nine times out of 10, I would say it's probably an abscess. So once you've got the hoof, you know, there in front of you, hopefully it's nice and clean. If it's not just come straight out of the field, um, you use your knives just to, just to go around the edge of the white line because normally that's like the softest bit between the sole and the hoof wall. So that's usually where it would come out. So you just go around the edge and what you're looking for is any black, tiny little black holes or entrances of where this infection has come from. If you can't quite see that from sort of cleaning, cleaning it out with your knife, then maybe a hoof tester would be able to give specific areas of pressure. So when you hit that pressure point, the horse will react to it. So then you've got a general area where that abscess would be. Once you cut, sort of slowly cut into it, and then maybe a tiny nail just to push it, push the pressure and hit the pocket. Once you hit that pocket, the pressure comes out and you have all this lovely mess that comes out with it. Once you've got that, usually the horse is actually pretty sound the next day. You need to get that infection out. Hence why we use poultices, anything like that. The poultice helps draw the infection out of that hole. You would poultice normally a wet, warm poultice for a few days. Once the infection's out, maybe just poultice for a dry, dry poultice for a few days to help this harden up. And then you hope you've got the infection out. Once that's done, you should be all good to go. So that's one of the main winter reasons. In the summer, horses can get abscesses from bruising. So anything heavy bruising. So say if they've trodden on a rock or anything to cause direct trauma through the sole. And sometimes through the wall, if they've hit a pole very hard, they can actually cause a, almost a, a blood blister underneath, like I said, about the thumb. The body actually tries to get rid of that. But what happens, you get an infection in there. So from heavy bruising, it can develop into an abscess. So there's no general time of year when it can happen. It can just happen. So with, with that bruising, you're the same steps, same procedure with your thumb, a thumb with the knife, with the hoof testers, and hopefully you can find the pressure point pop it, as we say, pop the pressure and then pulse it up. And hopefully within a few days, you can get either you get the shoe pop back on or we'd be able to take the poultice off and crack on in, in the field as normal. It's just one of those things that you just can't predict. Some horses just tend to get it more than others. It's just one of those things. Um, I actually had one horse, which was a Shire, kept getting abscesses and we couldn't understand. And we found out with the vets after a long time, they actually had low protein levels in its system. And that's what was causing the abscesses eventually. So that house getting infection inside 
out. So it was that was quite a rare one, but that was that was pretty good. Uh, eventually, we found found the end on that one. So there we are. Hopefully, some of that was uh, helpful for you guys. Good luck. Thank you, Sam. Sam will be back with us next week for the final episode of his mini-series when he'll talk about becoming a farrier as a career. We'll have an interview with young show horse producer Will Morton who talks about his Horse of the Year show memories ahead of this year's Hoys. And we'll discuss all the week's news. If you're enjoying listening to the podcast, do rate, review and share it to help us spread the word and grow the Horse and Hound podcast family. Talk to you next week. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.